This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and you have probably heard me say that a lot recently because there's a lot of stuff to talk about around Charlotte FC. The uh, The football matches are rolling. The win streaks are rolling. And so the content machine is rolling. And we're just going to keep hitting you with podcasts. And here to hit you with podcasts alongside me is Ewan. Hello, Ewan. Hello. How's it going? Uh, it is It is good. We just had an episode where we had kind of a cool opportunity to talk to one of the music industry leaders of Charlotte. And Charlotte has its own sort of music industry scene that I didn't know that much about until this weird crossover happened where we found out that that they are, and particularly our guest, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Cutright, was a big fan of Charlotte FC. Had no idea about this. Got the, the cool chance to do a crossover. If you want to hear about Chris's experience going to his first game in the stadium last night on Wednesday, uh, you can hear about that in our post-react from last night. But today we are here to do the breakdown of not just Atlanta, which was a spectacular game, <laughs> Uh, but also for the chaos that was Chicago and you and I'm going to need some help because there's a lot to do. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> I mean, back to back games where I mean, the, the Atlanta game, it, you you see the score afterwards and you think, I don't know how many Charlotte fans thought it was going to go the way that it did. And then against Chicago, you think oh, a bit of a winning streak go in. Go one nil down. Okay, yeah, maybe this is going to temper everything. You know, after winning a, a couple of fun games, this is going to be our come come back down to earth moment. And then suddenly, it's it's exactly the opposite. We turn things around in the second half, and the uh, the win streak and the uh, chaos continues. So yeah, happy to uh, happy and excited to to get stuck into it. Yeah, um, really, really. You're right when you say that. I don't think anyone saw this coming. Not with the way this team started. We were talking about it beforehand, and we were talking about how this this section coming up was going to be a particularly difficult section. And we sort of picked out Chicago Fire as a match that maybe wasn't as hard as some of the other ones around it. But we keep saying that there are big tests on the horizon. And now Charlotte FC just keeps destroying those tests. Um, let's talk about Atlanta first. I think if we go in chronological order, we can do Atlanta, then we can do Chicago, and we can talk a little bit about Nashville coming up. Although, spoilers, there's not that much to know about Nashville other than they're quite good and they have one star player. But you can stick around and hear a little bit more than that. Uh, you have a note in here, Ewan, uh, that says you want to talk about the the man-to-man pr- pressing structure against Atlanta. You want to tell us a little bit about what thoughts are going through your head? Yeah, I mean, this is this is particularly uh, particularly uh, referring to the early part of the first half of that game, um, which is it's a little bit of the morning after the night before talk, where obviously on the night you win the game, it's brilliant, everything like that. But I think there is another world from that game where Atlanta gets the first goal after a. And, and could have got it in a in a few different moments, and maybe the game plays out a little bit differently due to the game state shifting with them getting the first goal. Uh, and it comes from exactly what you refer to. It's the uh, 
it's the fullback to fullback pressure, but it comes from a pressing structure, which is Atlanta set up with two centre-backs and two deep midfielders, but they have one midfielder dropping deeper than the other in the game. Um, and how it's structured is both the wingers come inside, so Merrim and Josviak come inside and deal with the centre-backs. And Swiderski, who is a striker in this game, drops on the deepest midfielder. So what that leaves is the two full-backs outside to be dealt with. And most teams would usually deal with them with the outside midfielders. So in this case would be Westwood uh, and Ben Bender. But in Charlotte's case, which we've seen already this season, the fullbacks will push right up on the opposition fullbacks, um, which is a really, really aggressive way to play. <laughs> and obviously something that Atlanta saw coming because they knew how to play through it early doors in this game. Um, and they manipulated it within the first sort of three minutes. There was that chance which ended up with Kalina injury. Mm-hmm. Um where the ball eventually is played into the corridor of uncertainty uh, with with two Atlanta players waiting for it at the back post. And it comes from a situation where Jalen Lindsay pushes right, right up on the Atlanta left back, uh, which means Adelson Melanda has to then push up on the opposition left midfielder. Um, and from there, a quick one-two is played, which, you know, the, the easiest way to play against a man-to-man press is to play a one-two. It's hard to deal with. And from there, the whole defensive structure is shifted because Adelson Melander's out of position, which means that the left-sided centre-back, Sobashinsky, has to come into the right centre-back area. Uh, the left-back, in this case, was Nathan Byrne, has to come into the left centre-back area. So who's in the left-back area? Pretty much no one, which means that they can function it out wide to the right, which means they can get that cross in without much resistance. This seems quite a negative thing to speak about after probably what might be considered the best win that Charlotte FC have had as a club because it's on the road against uh, their biggest rivals. Um, but I think it's it's something worth talking about because it's something that's come up a few times earlier this season. The aggression of Charlotte FC's press under Latanzio, which kind of goes in a juxtaposition to the overall... Um, setup that we had yeah. overall in the game that was to kind of sit back like our low block was fine when when Atlanta had possession in our half we we set up really well really smartly and even in a mid block situation we actually did very well but when they're in their first phase of build up I think we saw that as an opportunity to try and as we do in a lot of games we want to press high because we want to we want to press to to win the ball and create a transition opportunity. Not even like a, a transition, uh, not even a transition opportunity is a counter attack. A transition opportunity where we are in their third with the ball and let's go attack. And I just think that was ill advised. Uh, not only is it attacking structure, but I just think Atlanta are too good to do that against. Um, so I, I just I watched this game back and it happened a couple times in the first twenty minutes where we got caught out of structure as a result of that. And I just thought it was worth bringing up just as kind of a, uh, to be the, uh, to, <laughs> to, to be a bit of the naysayer, to be the um, biggest, to be the biggest joy kill in the world. I thought it was <laughs> worth bringing up because it was a great win and it was brilliant, but how, how easily can a game go a different way? If, I mean, you said it on the, on, on the post react is the margins and we won on the margins. 
Yeah. Let, let me go ahead and get on to Kalina here for a second, because yeah. in both games, we have to talk about Kalina. I, I realize we're going to talk about the games a little bit separately, but they both experience this thing. Um, the position that Charlotte FC's fullbacks are in is not super inspiring right now. Um, I think a lot of people can agree. There's not a lot of knowledge of exactly what is going on at the left fullback position. The right fullback position has a very young option that has some real attacking talent in Jalen Lindsay or a slightly older option who feels a little bit more stationary in Nathan Byrne, depending on whether or not Nathan Byrne is playing on the left that day. Uh, our fullbacks, you know, you talk about this, and I'm actually going to go a little bit to the other way and that I kind of like that uh, Latanzio pushed them up. And the reason I like that is I don't think they're the best fullbacks in the world. And I think that Latanzio was willing to take a risk that said, hey, we are going to leave this open. You're a good team. You're probably going to get in on us at some point in time anyway. We are going to give you a little bit more opportunity to get open so that we get more shots at winning the ball in dangerous areas. And that's a risk, right? Like tactically, there is the, the situation there where you get absolutely cut open and murdered because of that decision. And then the press headlines are going to be really bad, right? Then everybody's going to be talking about, oh, well, Latanzio clearly didn't know who he was playing or, you know, Latanzio sets the team up to fail. Uh, in this particular one, I don't think it killed us, but it didn't kill us because of Christian Kalina, who it has to be said at this point in time, has some magic ability to win one-on-ones with a, an on-running <laughs> player. I genuinely, I think I counted five in the last two games. And for, for anyone out there who's played keeper or even played striker, you know that the striker is favored in that situation. In a clear one-on-one, a little bit better than 50% of the time, the ball goes into the back of the net. There has not been a single one of those five that I saw that I said were clear one-on-ones that the striker scored, except for the one against Chicago, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that was a rebound ball, and they get another chance at. Christian Kalina has really, really impressed me with his ability to somehow win these to the point that I don't know whether or not it's real. Like, you in, does this feel to you like a skill that Christian Kalina has and he's just really good at? Or does this feel like sometimes you flip a coin and it lands on heads five times in a row? Uh, I think I think it's potentially a skill that he has between the uh, month of March and mid-May that we're in now, because we kind of had this same thing at the start of last season, didn't we? Where Christian Kalina was just on this unbelievable hot streak of saving one-on-one opportunities. I mean, I think if you'd have asked most Charlotte fans 10, 15 games into last season, who's the player of the season, they prob- they would have said... You know, Swiderski has, has had some great moments in front of goal. Bronico, look at the energy that he plays with. There have been a few candidates. But Kalina was it was like the first like fan favorite like hero of the club because his first two months of last season were just unbelievable in terms of shot stopping. And I think what you refer to there, whether this is a skill or whether this is, you know, maybe just someone kind of running hot with uh, with a, with a streak. I think last season kind of gave us our answer and it's not, I don't even think it's too, I don't even think that that, that should be seen as as slander or criticism of, of Christian Kalina. It's just, you know, it, it's a, it's, 
an unsustainable rate of 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 success nope. in one on ones. Nope, he's done uh, this now. We know that he can block every single one on one. He's never going to lose a one on one again. I'm I'm leaning into it. I I believe it. He'll never lose a one on one. Um, it's, <laughs> it's special, and obviously, I'm being facetious there. Sooner or later, somebody's going to get on him, and it's going to hurt us. Um, but I do think it's safe to say that in both of these two games, and certainly in the Atlanta match, his performance gives us the right to go out there and play. Uh, let's talk really quickly about uh, a guy named Tiago Almada, who did not play against Charlotte FC. Uh, he was on the field. He was wearing an Atlanta jersey, and he wasn't sitting on the bench. Apparently, they did put him out like onto the pitch where he was supposed to be running around and kicking the ball, but he didn't get to do a lot of that. And we talked about it in the post-react how he got really well shut down both tactically and by sort of work rate and effort. And I looked into a little bit further and there were really three or four people who got tasked with Tiago Almada. And I think they all deserve a shout out because they all worked really hard. They all pulled duty and a half essentially. And they all did a really good job of containing an incredibly dangerous player. Um, from the back, or I say from the back line, in the midfield, Brent Bronico was dropping into the back line. And, you know, maybe on another tactics pod one time, we'll talk a little bit more about exactly what he was doing that I think really helped us from the defense. But he was dropping deep into almost a line of five, and then he was stepping out as the play developed, and, and he was sort of the player that was going fishing. And when Tiago Almada tried to take up that spot in between the defensive line and the midfield, whenever something was about to happen, Brent just popped out of his slot and was on him. Just never let him breathe. Never let him, uh, never let him get the touch that put him in the game. And so then Tiago Almada started hunting around other spaces, right? He, he stayed a little bit more on the left. And when he went out on the left for him, we saw some incredible work from Ashley Westwood who seems like he was given the task of just shutting down Tiago Almada. I mean, he still played his job too. He still made his runs and he still, you know, gave us some, some Ashley Westwood passes, but he was just constantly there breathing down Almada's neck. And right next to him, we had, uh, oh my gosh, I've lost his name, was playing right back for us in Atlanta. You and help me. <laughs> so it was Lindsay, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was Jalen Lindsay. Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jalen, one of those total brain lose-outs. Um, Jalen also does a good job of basically ensuring that while I don't think he got a ton of times that he was really one-on-one -on -one with Almada, that if he had the opportunity to double-team Almada, he helped. Right, He was there to assist. And two other people that sort of filled that role, Ben Bender did it. Bender came in and covered a lot of ground. And even though defensively he's not known for being sort of a stalwart, he did a good job of when, when the danger was there, he tried to assist, he tried to help double as well as, and we talked about this extensively in the post, Kamal Yuzhviak did an amazing job of tracking back, really spending a lot of energy and effort to make sure that guy didn't get to play the ball. Tactically, we closed him out of that game. Would you say that that's fair, Ewan? Uh, I think that's fair after we kind of changed things up a little bit once we got the lead. 
mm-hmm. because I mean, I, I'm 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 probably going <laughs> to. I think my my perspective of this Atlanta game is going to be split into two parts. The part where we were in an equal game state in the first, I think it was after 17 minutes when we went one nil one nil up, and then afterwards where it seemed like we gradually adjusted things because every single thing that you're saying there is is pretty much spot on in terms of what how we handled uh Thiago Almada who is like you say is, is the main threat for Atlanta uh but uh, just to touch on those first kind of 15 or so minutes before we uh we take the lead uh like I mentioned earlier it, it, we were playing kind of man-to-man and I th- what, what what Thiago Almada was was doing was, and it was quite smart. And I don't know if it was him doing it or whether this was instructed by uh, by the coaching staff. He was being as effective as possible by manipulating the man to man structure, by kind of just taking himself away from the from the play. <laughs> because in transition, he was man marked by Westwood when he was coming over to that left side, where it seemed like they wanted to concentrate their build up. Uh, for a lot of the early part. And what he would do is he would kind of just make his way down to the left side whilst build-up was happening. Westwood would follow him and basically just open up more space for the play mm-hmm. to progress into. Because if uh, if you're the defensive team, what would you, you know, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a one-on-one? Would you rather have a two-on-two? Would you rather have a three-on-three? Would you rather have a four-on-four? You'd rather have the the moment with more players because you're not only do you have more defenders to match up, but you know, you you're cluttering the area, you're giving them less space to play in. So because of a man to man build up, whether it was him doing this intuitively or, or, or the coaching staff, it was a case of, okay, I'm in the 10, I'm in the middle. Let me move away. If he's going to be that strict, if, if they're going to be that strict man marking wise, let me just kind of remove myself from the play and create space for everyone else. Let me, as the number 10, remove myself from the play and give everyone else this space to attack to. Um, and it it kind of worked, created a few good opportunities. Like we mentioned earlier, I, I wasn't happy with the way we opened up the game structurally, but then mm-hmm. we score, things kind of change in terms of our structure, and we get to the structure that, you're, that you were referring to there where we have this group effort in a kind of mid-block uh, where Thiago Amado is being passed off between players. It's a little bit more zonal. Bronico is getting more involved in that defensive structure rather than playing a little bit further up the field in uh, uh, in a press. Uh, I, I think I, I think that was that was a really smart way to go about it. If if our, if our plan was to be very aggressive in the first instance, kind of catch them off guard, get a goal in the early stages, and then revert to that structure to be able to hold that lead and add to it as we did with with counters, then we played it perfectly. So but I, I, have a, I have a question for you in here because you use a term that I like and I think Charlotte FC does well in. And that is your reference that we fell into a mid-block. And the more I watch this team play, the more I think that they're, they are most effective in a somewhat off-the-ball sort of mid-block, not a, not a deep, low-block system, but where the press starts kind of in the middle of the pitch, not high up. What do you think about that perspective? I, I think that holds a lot of weight. I think that that's... I think that... I think that's true because, and, and this is kind of negated by the fact, and we'll get onto the Chicago game, a game that we, spoiler alert, won. 
yeah. with more pos- yeah with with more possession of the ball but before that game we had four wins in in MLS play and we also had four games in MLS play where we had less possession than the other team and you know guess what those four wins were they were in the four games where we had less possession and is that a coincidence is that yeah is it is it does it lend itself to game state a little bit i think it does but at the same time i think it's not entirely a coincidence you know Um, what you know what i feel like it lends itself to and this will be a good a good thought for you we haven't really discussed this like off mic or anything i i don't think this is a big space team i don't think that these are big space players i think that they are a little bit more comfortable when they're sort of in touching distance to their teammates there aren't that many people on the team. I think you would say that Enzo and uh, certainly Jalen Lindsay fit in that like really big space player type of mold. Uh, I think you would have to say that up that right side, you can get into Mackenzie Gaines, who is a big space player. But otherwise, I wouldn't consider DJ a big space player. I wouldn't consider Brandt a big space player. I wouldn't consider Westwood a big space player. I wouldn't consider Bender a big space player. This team kind of likes that a little bit more compact shape and then the ability to spring forward. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think I, in terms of in terms of players being big space players, you're right in terms of Mackenzie Gaines, obviously. His his attributes suit perfectly to playing with that counter into large spaces because he's so quick. Um, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that that would suit him. In terms of the midfield, I think that Westwood is someone who can operate in cluttered spaces. I think because I think he's really physically, I think he's physically very good. But also, I think he works in that kind of system because he wants to play into big spaces from deep. Because I don't think he wants to play on the turn. One of the things about this team is that they don't have a perfect in-possession six. Derek Jones is a really good defensive six. Yeah. Not a great in-possession six. Ashley Westwood's a really good in-possession eight, who is being forced to do a lot of the build-up and carry a lot of the weight in build-up. But he's not a perfect in-possession six because he doesn't want to play on the turn. Mm-hmm. He can, but he doesn't want to, ideally. The best thing for him is to play further ahead and play forward facing and deliver the ball into into large areas um bronico is an interesting case because he might be our best in possession six but he's the he's the guy out of the three between westwood jones and him that seems to be playing further up the field um one thing i definitely think is true is brant bronico likes to go on a run yeah like he likes the the freedom to explode all the way up into the corners. And as time has gone on, I like that less. Um, I think Brant had a really good game. And I think the times when in this particular one, and we need to sort of move along on the games here, but in this one, I do think Brant was given the role of he needed to stay back. And you'll, if you rewatch it, you'll see a lot of times that he was setting the defensive line. He was the one with his arms out in the middle going, the defensive line is here. And then when he went on a run, he was making a run all the way up to the sort of attacking eight position, not to the attacking corner. And it meant that he was still in sort of that midfield channel and didn't get drawn away and leave space open. 
And I wonder if that was a sort of a thought from Latanzio of if he's going to go on the run, let me start him deeper. So he runs to where I want him. And then we can still take advantage of his presence on defense. Yeah, that, I mean, that's 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 when the tactics conversations get really fun because of how the team's playing against you. Um, what one one of the one of the thoughts that people have in terms of you know the players who are best at, at dribbling, obviously if wingers are great at dribbling. You want them out wide. You want them playing on the wing. You're not going to force them into other positions mostly. But in terms of midfielders who can carry the ball well, traditionally you would think. If you've got a if you've got a number ten, it, well not a number ten. If you've got a midfielder who can carry the ball well, I'll get him in the ten. You know, a great dribbler. Um, but the way football's going and the way it's going in MLS, the fact that teams press so often, it's almost, there's a school of thought now where it's like, okay, well if teams are going to press us that aggressively, do we want our best ball carriers to be, be to be playing a little deeper? Because then, if we have our best ball carriers deeper, if they can go by the press by carrying the ball then what are the opportunities that arise for us we'll have equally we'll have the equally numerical uh, transition three on three four on fours whatever it may be yeah so that's the interesting thing with bronico how do you deploy him because i do think he's a strong ball carrier i know it, it, it annoys people and it annoys me because when he's further up the field and you you have him carrying the ball it can often feel like he's he's going down alleyways which don't end up anywhere you'll you'll see him and this was a this was a case early in the season when he's when he's carrying the ball, he'll kind of end up going to the corner flag and and trying to like you know maneuver a corner or a throw in or, or get a restart. So his his dribbles didn't have much purpose, but it makes a lot more sense for him to be carrying the ball from deeper, so that he can then find a pass further ahead, which will then inevitably well not inevit- inevitably depending on the opponent be for a winger in space because they pressed you so high. Which was something that we did really well last season, but doesn't seem to have been a part of this season. And I think that there is a reason for that, because I think Latanzio, one of his big things is that he always wants pressure on the ball. That's why we press so aggressively. Pretty much no matter, well, I don't want to say no matter who the opponent, because we've not played the best of the best yet, but we have played Atlanta, who are a really good team. I think we can count as quite good. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. They they are really, really good. Um, I'm going to jump in here. Because I do think that there's a further expansion on sort of the Bronico role we could go into. But yeah. we have not actually talked about any of the goals of the first match. And <laughs> we're now 30 minutes into this podcast. So that's, the, that's the boring part. The goals are the boring part. <laughs> the, honestly, you know what's funny is in this particular instance, the goals kind of are the boring part. Um, I think we can make a statement that uh, the attacking mids and Carol Schroederski do a really, really good job in all of the goals. They do a great job of, of working hard and getting into places that they're drawing away runners. Um, they're creating space for Merrim on the other side. The, the first goal, and I'm going to go through these really quickly for time's sake, the first goal from Merrim is an absolutely incredible touch. Um, it's special. The, the one-touch control off of that ball, he makes it look easy. It is not an easy thing. The, the question I have for you, Ewan, is some people really like the, the sort of respectful no celebration. Some people really don't like it. Where do you fall on the fence of, hey, I, you know, I spent many years at this club. Uh, I'm somewhere else now, but I want to show my respect back to where I came from. 
Um, I mean, like you say, it's it's a it's a contentious point because uh, some people would like to just see, you know, you're on our team now. You know, we've, you know, we travel all this way to see you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You, you you're part of our our squad and everything like that. And when you score a goal, especially to put you kind of one 0 up in a game in a big game, we want to see you kind of you know be expressive and go wild. Um, but in this case, and I I kind of want to preface this by saying I don't really know too much about personally his experience uh in atlanta maybe there was a lot of incredible things that happened uh while he was there i know they had success while he was there but you know i, I kind of looked at this and was like he was he was there for for one year yeah <laughs> and he was very very respectful for the fact that it was only one year's worth of football that he would played there and if that's how he feels about the area and the fans then you know fair play i i'm i'm not gonna take that away from him but it was a little bit surprising because not only was it kind of like a non-celebration, it was about as pol- as apologetic as I've seen. It, it was <laughs> very apologetic, wasn't it? Yeah, some and... players don't some some players don't celebrate uh, against their old team. Not many players will kind of actively look, yeah, like, look at the fans for... and be like and be like, hold your hands up and be like, I'm yeah. very sorry for destroying your hopes and dreams today. Um, I, we're not sorry that he destroyed Atlanta's hopes and dreams. Uh, but I do feel like he came away from that. Uh, he obviously made a very good account of himself that day, despite a couple of loose passes. Uh, a classy performance is the the term I'm going to use. Really quickly, I think that everyone has seen the replays a thousand times. Kamal Yuzhviak is becoming a player that is just so hard to live with. And he makes an incredible run. It's the Polish connection again. Um he gets pulled down in the box. It's a red card. It is a red card. Josh will agree with me in the fact that we have always loved VAR uh, on this podcast. <laughs> we have always said that VAR is amazing, and we've definitely never cussed at it privately or publicly. Uh, VAR is definitely right this time, and we're very thankful for it. I'm glad it caught it. It's well put away by uh, Carol. We covered that fairly extensively in the post-react. Is there anything super quick you want to talk about on the pen? Um, no, I, I don't think there's too much to add apart from the fact that it is, I mean, people, as you kind of allude to there, it has its, it has its fans, it has its, it has its detractors, but that is a case where you really, you really want VAR to exist regardless yeah. of how you feel, because the shirt pull is, it, it's blatant on replay. But mm-hmm. when you look at the referee's angle and how he did it, he he, he did a re- five years ago. This would have been a really smart shirt pull because he disguises it quite well to make sure that the ref's angle can't really see it. Yep. Um, but that's what VAR's there for. It, it's it's there to detect really obvious things like that. Like that is a Stonewall penalty. There won't be Atlanta fans unless they really are being quite biased about it that will think that that is not a penalty. And then the penalty itself. Um, is is a really good penalty and I, I i don't just say that because you know it, it was scored but i th- i'm a big fan of penalties where they go right along the ground because people talk about a penalty being a good height for a goalkeeper and maybe not so much about a penalty being a bad height for a goalkeeper when you can put a penalty really low along the ground it's really hard to save and we alluded to this in the post react of the dc united charlotte game the first goal in that game the penalty that Mark's got a hand to that, and it was like, oh, should he have saved it? You know, it should he have done better with that? The reason why he wasn't able to save it, even though, even though he got a hand to it, was because it was just exactly along the ground. 
Yep. So they're really hard to save. So the technique on the penalty from uh, Swiderski is really, really good as well. So I'd, uh, yeah, I, I just add add that as well. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a pretty stale war penalty and a pretty obvious red card on top of that. So let's move on. Uh, goal three comes along after the red card. The momentum was always kind of kind of shift into our favor. We get goal three. Justin Merrim again gets a brace on the day. Um, we're going to talk later about the fact that we've now had, I believe, three games in a row where a player got a brace. And uh, another another piece of quality for, for him ghosting in behind his man, showing that you don't necessarily have to be the fastest guy on the pitch, that occasionally you can be the guy who wisdom shows through and get yourself in a good position. There was some talk about the fact that we lost control of this game at the end, and I think it's fair that we address it because... I think that there was a combination of losing control this game at the end. And part of it was a little bit of disbelief, like a little bit of, oh, wow, we're in this situation. And a little bit of running out of legs. I think that the stuff we talked about earlier, a lot of it was possible because people were doing sort of position and a half jobs. And I think that you could see quite a few players on the on the pitch at the end of the Atlanta game, that even though it was 11 v 10, looked like they had finished their gas tank on 70 minutes and had been finding reserves of nothing for 20 minutes after that. And by the end, they just looked dead. Did you get a similar vibe out of this? Yeah, I think we, we've... Well, people have talked about Latanzio being too defensive. Uh, in, in winning situations earlier in the season where we've had one little leads and two one leads and we've 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 gone too defensive too early and invited pressure on ourselves. But I think this is a case where you can kind of forgive um yeah. uh, Latanzio for going uh, going more defensive. And when you're 3-0 up and you invite that kind of pressure on against 10 men as well, you know, maybe maybe they'll get themselves a goal. In this case they uh they get themselves a goal from uh, from a set piece, which they'll be disappointed about um, the fact that they've allowed a set piece goal to to go to in. To go in, yeah, yeah, playing against ten I men, think... but but at the same time, three 0 down with ten men in the eighty fifth, eighty sixth minute, you know, you're not exactly leaving anyone back. Like from a from a standard corner, you would have a certain amount of players go to the box and leave a certain amount of players for for, for your for your rest defense for a counter. Whereas when you're three 0 down in the eighty fifth, eighty sixth minute. Who who are you going to leave back? Like, what are you defending against? You need three goals, so it's almost like it's to be treated like a standard corner. Like they would have had the same amount of players up that they would have done for any kind of set piece. So I suppose that takes away from it as well. But I do think that people saying that we lost control because they had a a, a lot more pressure. I, I, I kind of disagree because I think it's fine when you're three nil three nil up in a game against ten men to 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 rest on your, on your laurels, so to speak, but more so to kind of just play in a way that negates any counterattacks, negates any transition moments, make sure that their best players who, for the most part of their play, playmakers, don't have a lot of space to work in. Like there'll, there'll have been fans who were dreaming after the third goal of a 4-0, 5-0 win, but I think we played it the right way to guarantee that we won the game. Yeah, we said we weren't going to give them anything cheaply. And on tired legs... In, uh, you know, I think people are calling it the I-85 Derby. In the Derby, uh, I don't necessarily hate the once you're up by three against 10 men, a little bit of park the bus and just make sure you control the game. 
Atlanta was a heck of a ride. I don't know a lot of people that would have have guessed or would have gone out of their way to say that that was going to be the game we showed up and really looked like a team that could be something and could really go somewhere. But that's what we got out of it, and we're super happy to see it. We are going to uh, sort of jump ahead. There was uh, some questions about the the Hamadi Diop situation, get subbed on late, get subbed off like 10 or 15 minutes later. I think all we're going to say about that right now is that it looks like uh, Christian Latanzio has some non-negotiables. It looks like he has some stuff that he has told players that if you do not achieve these things that I'm telling you, I am pulling you off the pitch. And it looks like he's now willing to back that up. And if you look at the the sort of mass clear out of players that has happened, people that have been uh, moved on, people that, you know, we've heard stories, maybe they weren't doing their best in training that are no longer playing for the club or, or, you know, got set down on the bench until their, their play improved from Latanzio's eyes. I don't think anyone is now going to say Latanzio is not going to back up what he's saying. Is that the right move? Is that what's going to make the club the best in the future is a long-term discussion. I think maybe we can have another day, but from my perspective, if he looked at Hamidi Diop and said, here's what you do, here is the non-negotiable. And Hamidi Diop said, well, I don't care about your non-negotiables and went out and did whatever he wanted. I don't, I don't see a huge issue in this, but it certainly doesn't look good. Uh, should we move on to Chicago, Ewan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good to, uh, yeah, keep it, keep it moving. I'd, I'd say on the, on the Diop thing, I, I tried to, uh, like we spoke about earlier, I, I tried to look for something that may have, 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 been in you know one of those principles that you mentioned the the non-negotiables i tried to look in his short cameo for anything that might have been an obvious um example of him going against them and i couldn't find it um so you know it wasn't obvious to us at least yeah exactly i'm not saying that he was wrong or anything like that i'm just saying I, i i tried to find what it was and was interested what it might have been but i i i couldn't find it so you know Let's let's maybe wait for the the next substitute to be uh, substituted off after ten or twenty minutes, and maybe we'll try and find some similarities in the performances, and then maybe we'll have our answer. But yeah, I generally agree with what you say. It's it's important for a head coach to have non negotiables and and have things that you know that they set as the standard. And if anyone breaks them, you know, if 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 they don't come without a consequence of being substituted off, then there's there's no real point of having them in the first place. So no, I agree with what you say there. Yeah, it's one of those things. I'm going to go ahead and move on to Chicago. And what I'm going to talk about first in the Chicago performance is that obviously we are missing everyone on the wings, right? Uh, Ben Bender, who can play on the wing, has picked up an injury. Mackenzie Gaines has an injury. Kamal Yuzhviak, it looks like, has done a re-injury. We are... Uh, we had a questionable, but it did look like uh, young Kerwin Vargas was not able to play, which left us with all sorts of questions about how the the system was going to be set up. And one of the things that we have, I have struggled with, with the way Latanzio has played, is I see a lot of very vast changes. A lot of times where people are are being asked to take up significantly different spaces and have jobs that seem to be changing a lot without them getting a lot of time to, you know, perfect and implement that system. 
I think this is a complicated enough game that that's really difficult to do until you've been doing it for five years. So uh, a really good example of this is if I was to hold up a board for three seconds and on that board were the numbers one through 10 and they were in the order one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 in a half of a second, you would go, yeah, I can repeat back to you what's on that board, right? All you need to do is get a brief glance of the board and you'd know exactly the way it works. If I was to hold up a board for three seconds that had the numbers 17, 19, 23, 29, 31, 37, 41, 43, 47, and 53 on it, you probably wouldn't be able to repeat them all back if I held up the board for one second and then dropped it. Now, those happen to be prime numbers that are in an order. So it's a different set of orders, but the order one through 10 is the order that we all learn in school, right? It's the order that everyone knows inherently, which means you can recognize that system very quickly and you can act on it immediately. The prime number system is still a system. It's still a, a set of rules by which we can address the next th number is coming. And if you know that system, you can sit down and say, well, the next prime number after 31 is 37. So the next one was then going to be 37. But it still takes you more time to get to. And I think that this game was always going to suffer from the fact that some of the, the automatisms, some of the things the players had started to know were going to be there, had started to know that uh, Kamal Yushviak was going to be making this run. Some of those were just not available, and Christian Latanzio had to adjust for them. I think Jalen Lindsay had a really, really tough job. You know, I think he comes off uh, for probably the best sub of Charlotte FC's history. Uh, I think he comes off exhausted. I think Adilson Melanda ended up having a lot of work to do. He was probably doing two jobs and looked like he struggled a little bit to do both. I think that just from a who is actually available for this one standpoint, this was always going to be tough. Would you would you say that's fair, Ewan? Yeah, like you mentioned, there, there were a certain amount of changes in this game um, that we made. And not only were we playing a team away from home that are on paper better than us to playing a team at home that on paper we are better than. And that brings with it those those tactical changes as well, along with the personnel changes. Um, and this was our first experience of playing a MLS game, um, going from one MLS game to another on quite short, uh, short rest time and, and, and short you know, tactical teaching time and, and game planning uh, from one to the other. And, and not to disrespect the cup games, but obviously they'll be approached in a, in a different way than the MLS games, I'm sure. Um, they'll have a certain plan in place to be playing against what I don't think it's disrespectful to say is inferior opposition to the degree that the Open Cup games will be um, versus going from a game on the road to Atlanta, travelling back, even though the travel isn't that extensive, uh, to playing at home against Chicago on a uh, on a Wednesday night, so there'll, there'll be that adjustment and the personnel adjustment. Um, I think that you alluded to it, the Jalen Lindsay thing. I think this is the story of the game. I think 
when you set up a team in the way that we do with Jalen Lindsay and the role that he was playing, it's just really, really hard to defend in transition with him playing that role. Um, so if you're adamant well, on playing... Yeah, he just say, gets so high up the pitch that like, he cannot magically teleport back into defensive position. Yeah, and, and, and he was... There were transition moments where he was really, really, really tracking back with full intensity and still couldn't get back to to the play because of how it had been progressed. So it's not even that you're banking on someone being, you know, oh, he's a great athlete, he's very fast, he'll be able to recover in that time, which is a uh, is a common way of setting up a pressing structure because you can sometimes look at a rest defense and say, oh, well, he's out of position uh, and, and, and the ball's with the opposition. But you say, okay, well, how fast will it take for that ball to get to that person and how fast can that player get back to that position? And often the player getting to that position will take less time than the ball getting to the area which they vacated. But in this case, that was the uh, was the reverse. I think there's a. I think the main problem is that the the style that we play doesn't match the structure. If you're going to play that aggressively with players high up the field, you have to play. And I saw people say the opposite that we play too slow. I think we don't play slow enough sometimes on the ball. I think we have to play with real patience to move players up the field and make sure that we get the opposition further back into their block because that's the best way to help our rest defense and this is if we are adamant on playing with this structure if we are adamant of with playing with two defenders playing playing in a 2-3 rather than a 3-2 in build up if we are adamant with this structure we have to play slower and with more patience and move the ball forward a little bit more patiently and get them into their block deeper because the only way that we're going to be less susceptible to counterattacks playing this structure is having them come from deeper. I think that's the only solution. And we just we we play really fast. We play we try and maneuver transition moments in our structure at the moment. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't match in terms of our, in terms of stopping counterattacks. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So we go from the Atlanta game where our game plan once we go 1-0 up is pretty much, you know, pretty much perfect in in my opinion to a game like this where we have to take the initiative, where we're on the ball more. And it just doesn't make sense. And the reason why it's frustrating is because we've advertised ourselves to the fan base as a possession side. So you'd think this would would suit us more, but it seems like that's not the case. I don't. So, So a good question for you here and this is something that's sort of been floating around in my mind for a while, is that is in the MLS, where you get a lot of the the sort of top physicality in the game, you get a lot of really, really fast sprinters, you get a lot of people who are very willing to go in shoulder to shoulder and throw in hard challenges, but technically probably suffers from some of the other top leagues in the world. Do you think that there is just an, an an argument that there might not be the level of technical quality you need in the MLS to, and we're not just talking about Charlotte here, we're talking about in general, to go out and play a incredibly dominant possession game? I mean, I, I think what, what I'm trying to get at what we should do, I don't think it's overly demanding technically. What I'm What I'm kind of advocating for is you'll see us push 
fairly high up the field and have the ball just before the halfway line. And what we'll do is we'll try and switch it to wingers, like play a switch diagonal ball, or we'll, you know, try to hit it behind the two centre backs. Really, really, you, know, you have to play a really neat pass to get it to work petty. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I'm saying is the build-up needs to be more gradual and just in the in what some people would think is boring and not that technically demanding, like a ball out to the left back, which which would burn, and then goes to Merrim, who kind of tries to, you know, takes on his guy like five yards further down the line without really much threat of taking him on, taking him on just, you know, keep him standing off you. Then turn back inside, pass it back to Nathan Byrne as the left back, then pass it inside to Sobosinski would be as the left centre-back. Just by doing that, you can move 10 yards further up the field without really demanding much from anyone. And we don't seem to do that that much. And that's why I say that we try and attack with these transition moments that I mentioned with the diagonals and the balls in behind. We're trying to take advantage of space, but we 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 try and do it in a certain way that it, still means I, that we keep possession of the ball. It, it doesn't quite mesh together. And one thing that I'll also say that you mentioned there with MLS having great athletes and, and not great... Well, the balance of it is that the athletes are better, but the technical ability is a little bit lower. What I'd also say about MLS um, is that we play um, on on turf versus grass. That's its own debate in terms of whether that's safe or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you'll see sometimes that on turf, the ball will will skid more when you play it long. It, the bounce will will speed it up, will speed the ball up, and it's harder to play longer passes. So, yeah. and that's our home. That's our home ground. That's on turf. So why would we structure a team that wants to play longer passes like diagonals and balls in behind? Because it's hard enough to do anyway. But to do it on turf is so much harder. There was a moment in the game last night. I can't remember who played the pass. But it was too. Uh, it, the, actually, it was Westwood. It was Westwood trying to play the ball out right, and he plays the pass, and the commentator sees the weight of the pass and the space that it's going into, and he instinctively says, "Oh, what a ball!" Yeah. But I then it hits the turf, and it skids and it skids and it skids, and it goes out for a, for a throw in. So even if you do things technically as like well, it, it, it doesn't work on. It, well, it makes it harder to do it on turf. So I don't understand why we're structuring our team that way. It's almost like if you have a baseball team, you structure it to the field you're playing in. Like if you, and this might be, you know, I don't know how many baseball fans listen, but if you play at Fenway Park, then you want to have left field hitters because the the field comes in uh, further in. So you're going to hit more home runs that way. So why we, that's just another layer to this. Like why do we structure our teams playing a way that our home turf, literally our home turf doesn't really suit. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see what you're saying there, where essentially, one, you know, you make a really good point that if we're going to play those high-speed transitions and we then want to push everyone up quickly, if we lose the ball quickly, it means that they still have people in our attacking half that they can hit for quick transitions back, right? Then you talk about the setup of the team and how we're set up to play a game that is not only technically challenging, it's also happening on on a slick surface in this particular time i think i remember the ball you're talking about where the commentator was like oh yeah that and then and then it went out of play yeah first half i think it was i'm gonna move on because they score a goal in this one it's another one where you know they get into our back line it's a one-on-one christian kalina somehow magically still saves it 
the ball happens to fall right back to, uh, I believe it's Shabilko, and he slots in the second one. Christian Latanzio in the press conference puts this on DJ. I think I can understand where he's coming from. I think DJ leaves his space in the middle and goes a little bit too far out to the left. But I do think there is also an argument that considering what was happening, Westwood could have solved the problem. Uh, I don't know whether or not it's fair to say Westwood should have solved the problem, but I do think it's fair to say that Westwood had it within his ability to track that runner. Uh, again, first goal, it happens. There's a bit of a deflation and really all of this, this deflation from this first goal, I think comes from the fact that I avoid talking about referees. Anyone who listens to this show knows I avoid talking about referees. I don't think you can control them. So you have to focus on what you can control. I think it has to be pointed out that Tori Penso is the referee for this one. And it is an atrocious refereeing performance. It is really really bad. Uh, I do think that the first player going hard through the back of uh, Enzo Capetti early on is a clear and obvious penalty. Uh, I think the second one where he gets tripped, I think he's dangling a leg and I think that the defender gets the ball. I don't think that one's a penalty, but I do think the first one is 100% a penalty and everything changes if we get a penalty early on. Um, I think there's a handball in the box from the Jan Sobosinski shot, Sobosinski shot, that is a clear and obvious handball. Uh, and then there are numerous other times where it seemed like it seemed like the refereeing performance today was that the referees or yesterday was that the referees wanted to be the people in the headlines, not not the game. And that really, really bothered me. I think it would it would bother us even more if we don't come away with the win. I think that that cast of referees, not just Tori Penzo. I think that cast of referees kind of gets lucky because I think if it had, we had not come away with a win, there might've been a lot more spotlight on what was anybody can have a bad day. And Christian Latanzio in the press conference actually went out and said that, you know, sometimes players have bad days Sometimes, uh, you know, we as coaches have bad days and and sometimes uh, the referees have have a bad day. And I think it was a, it was a really, really bad day for Tori Penzo. I don't think that's how we want to see this league managed. And I, I think that's where I'm going to leave it. You and do you want to say anything on the refereeing performance? Um. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of, I, I, I leave officiating for the most part. I, I, you know, if if you get a, a referee who's, you feel like is is, not officiated a game well in your team's favour, then it evens out over a season. Like you'll go ten games further down the road, and you'll get a referee who, it's like, oh, we actually kind of got a few in our way that game. Um, I, I think it evens out over the season, and, and like you say, there's there's other things to talk about which are, are, are more you know, just generally interesting than, than talking about officiating. I, I will say this in terms of the officials, though, is that I think sometimes you get a game which inherently is quite hard to officiate because in that game, you have uh, Enzo go down a couple times early early on in the game, one time in an off-the-ball incident that was early in the game, and then after about 10 or 15 minutes, he goes down for a penalty incident, um, which, you know... It went to VAR. It didn't get given. 
it is what it is. But by that point, you've you've got a crowd that is is pretty incensed that they didn't get a decision their way. You've got a player in Capetti that is obviously very animated in the way that <laughs> they uh, they they feel about not getting decisions their way. And for that to happen early on in the game, it kind of sets the tone for okay. Well, after twenty minutes, if they don't get another decision or a decision goes the opposite way then the crowd is already baying at that point and, and already on your back. And that builds during a game. It gets to the 30th minute, it gets to the 40th minute, it gets to half time. Then in the second half, if it continues, you know, it's it, it's one of them things where a, a crowd, once they pick up on a ref and they feel like they're getting a hard, they, they feel like they're not getting a great whistle, it, they'll get it, on a referee. It referee's builds really back. quick. Yeah, and it'll make things look a little bit worse sometimes than they are, I feel like. And I'm not saying this refereeing performance was good. I'm not saying this refereeing performance was bad. I'm not saying anything like that. I just think sometimes you get a game where you can put any official in the game and they would end up getting ref. Uh, I think it's ref you get, suck. Getting played by the players, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, you get players coming up to you feeling pretty hard done by by the decisions. I Yeah, it's... So you and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you're much nicer than me in this one. <laughs> you are you are being very, very kind on this one. Um, but I am going to move us along because we are coming up on an hour and we have not talked about Brandon Cambridge, who definitely man of the match uh, for literally every human being that watched it. Um, he's come probably, with the hour, come with the man for the, uh, for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, what a... <laughs> What a performance. And, you know, if you listen to the post react last night, you'll hear how overwhelmingly hype I am about the fact that we've discussed at times players who just want to go to the goal. They don't want to uh, be tricky. They don't want to show you how good they are. They don't want to uh, not to say because everybody wants to get in the head of their opponents. There are some people who they get the ball and then they go to the goal. and from a skill perspective, they ask defenders whether or not they can stop them. And I think that maybe maybe to a fault, maybe to a benefit, Brandon Cambridge is a young man who sees a way for the ball to go into the goal, and he just tries it. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of times in the world it doesn't work. But I love that mentality because there's going to be a lot of times in the game it does work. And if he figures those times out, if he continues to take his chances, continues to push, continues to run at defenders, continues to put his fullbacks on toast, continues to hit shots from uh, a little bit further out, you know, continues to, to really set himself up in good positions in the box, he's not only going to continue scoring, he's going to continue learning how to score. And those numbers are just going to get better and better and better. And that's not to say that this this kid should leave this match with, you know, I'm the best player that's ever lived and I'm going to be the next Messi. That's not the takeaway here. The takeaway, I think, for him is, you know, we talked to Christian Latanzio, and Christian Latanzio said today he should celebrate. He should go home, or he should have gone home last night. He should have absolutely loved and lived in the moment. And then the next day he should have said, great, back to business, right? I think for this player, the level of directness he has, the level of desire towards the goal he has, I don't think he wants this to be a highlight. I think he wants what he did tonight to be business. And that says a lot about a 21-year-old. What have been your impressions, Ewan, of of a very young player? Yeah, I mean, um, 
I feel like I need to big you up in this because this is your guy. This is, you know, you 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 made sure that you made a point of uh, in the uh, I believe it was the Columbus game, making sure that people knew, you know, you're a you're a big Svidersky guy. This is your this is someone who you've defended in certain moments and everything like that. And this he played he was great tonight. Scored the winner. This is your moment. So I feel like I have to do that for you now because I know it's it's a completely different circumstance because even just from watching this guy uh, for Crown Legacy, you you. you you bought stock. You were like, this is, you know, and you've mentioned it before. This is someone who you think, you know, has a real, real chance to be a great player. So I feel like I should bring that up because uh, you <laughs> did it for it. me. So so I should uh, should let the people know that you were the guy who, I think even about a month ago, six weeks ago, you were saying the, the guy that's basically won us a game against uh, against Chicago it was someone who you said, yeah, you know what, this guy, I think you want to look out for him because he's got something. And he showed it last night. And I'm kind of, you know, it's all, it's almost like balancing expectations a little bit. I do think that, you know, you want to see him in some equal game states. You want to see him in certain setups, et cetera, et cetera. But last night, his two goals, the finishes are really good. The technique on the first one is brilliant. The second one, there's a calmness about the finish, which is which is also really, really good. But also just in general play, what was really impressive about him was he has really, really good amb- ambipedality, which, you know, is, is you know, he's, he's really two footed. Mm-hmm. So he he has that left foot, which he scored both his goals with. But also he wasn't afraid to take his man down the line. He had a couple of moments where he was really, really willing to, to take his guy down the line. I think it was after his first goal where he scored it on his left foot, where the fullback was thinking, well, you know, that's 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 how he wants it. He wants to cut inside. He wants to get on that left foot and, and deliver the ball or shoot or whatever it may be. And then he just takes him 10 yards down the line, gets to the byline and puts in a really, really good cross, which on another day could have could have ended up in a goal. And he could have, you know, we could have won this game 2-1 with a goal and an assist from him. So that is really, really promising for a young winger because that is one of those things where even if you are quite two-footed as a young winger, you end up trusting your strong foot because you're in that moment. You're playing in front of a big crowd. You're making one of your first few appearances for you know the the, the in professional football at the at the highest level of the uh, of the country you're in, and you kind of fall back on the things that you know you you can trust in, and that's you know your stronger foot, the things that you've done for a very long time. Whereas he was, you know, he he was playing with with complete abandon for any kind of pressure that he should have been under at that point, coming on at one nil down to save a game, and it was really really impressive. And again, I want to kind of pump the brakes on getting too excited about it because it'd be unfair on him to put all this pressure on him. Yeah, but it was, it, yeah, but it, but at the same time, you 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 almost you don't want to do that too much because then you're taking away from how good he was <laughs> so it's you're striking a fine balance and that's the main thing i would say on him is that the two goals are brilliant but just the general play the idea that he can cut inside and take a man down the line it really 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 is tough for a fullback playing against that kind of guy to defend him and once you you know if you were to bring a fullback into it for instance we were playing with some fullback inversion in this game but if you had a fullback just going it right down that line to the byline and you had someone with that kind of left foot playing against him or if you had just kind of an underlap and you knew you had someone who can go down to the byline but also cut inside or play a pass with his left foot to an underlapping fullback he's he's got a technical flaw which means that he can play 
at the uh, at MLS level. Mm-hmm. He's got a real high technical floor, and sometimes with players, you're kind of you know, you like you you're kind of banking on raw talent and and physicality and athleticism, and they'll kind of catch up with the other stuff through game time. But that's where Cambridge is a little bit different. There's a technical flaw, which means that he can execute the things that you want him to tactically within the structure of an attacking, um, the, the structure of how we want to attack passing-wise in, in tight areas that he can fulfill. So again, I don't want to put too much pressure on him. I don't want to say that he should start the next game. I don't want to say that he should start every game for the rest of the season because he's, he's this and he's that. I hope they kind of manage his development smartly, but he he's got a lot of high floor quality for someone who also has seemingly quite a lot of potential and a high ceiling too. So I mean yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sum it up on him and I, I'm gonna say we got a player. Yeah. He is he is a player. I think you make a really good call out about the fact that he is good off both feet. What have we said all year about the problem with Mackenzie Gaines? Everybody knows what he's gonna do. He's gonna run to the line. What did we say about the problem with uh, Carol Schroderski when he was out there on the right side? Everybody knew what was he, he was going to do. He was going to cut in on his left foot. He couldn't do the other one. And I think that now with the the job that uh, Kamal Yushiak has done out there where Kamal has both options, and to see another player come in with that that ability to use both feet, like you pointed out, really, really nice. And just a nice feeling moment. You know, the first goal... I don't know how many players in in the world have opened up their professional career with a brace for goals instead of just one. But the first goal he makes, you can see what it means. You can see how big it is. You can see how how it felt for him. And then the second goal, uh, he's much more calm about it. It's almost like he's had his big moment and now it's just business again. And like, this is what I was supposed to do. I put balls into the back of the net. I'm a good footballer. And then he reaches down and he kisses the badge. And like after it, this guy is after my heart, like, let's be totally honest. This guy is after my heart, big emotions, calm finishes, kiss the badge, take the crowns. What a, what a day for uh, Brandon Cambridge. Final thoughts on him. Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to temper the expectations there a little bit, but it oh, can't yeah. be lost in doing that, that this was just a really, really, really cool moment. Yep. For a it's, player that you know, it's 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 like you say. How many players? How many players on the game that they score the, their first goal score a brace, and how many players in the game that they score their first goal score a brace to take a game from one 0 down to a two to two one win? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 so cool. It's it, it was so so cool to watch, and just to see a player in that moment, a young player coming through, just almost have that graduation in the game, like you say, going from just that absolute just <laughs> excitement and from the first goal to the second goal, where it's just, you know, a lot calmer. He's almost like, you know, you, you're watching him. It's like you want to watch with any kind of young player that comes through your club's um, ranks. Just watching them get better and mature in front of your eyes is, is so cool. And, yeah, let's... Um, Let's hope that through the season we see more of him. But you know, in a, Let's in a keep way our that expectations under control for yeah, now. yeah, yeah, in a way that's measured. Because I, I think that we had we had the uh, the situation um, 
uh, earlier in the season, and also last season we had it with Bender. Um, at the, I mean, at the start of last uh, of last season, where you know Bender oh, he came was flying, in. And, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. He's flying. It's like, oh, this is the guy. I mean, there was shouts for the U.S men's national team for him and it's like mm. listen let's all just kind of you know this this guy he's he's riding really really high right now but this you know development isn't linear it, it will go up and it will go down and that doesn't mean that he's not trying that doesn't mean that he's he's gone to his head that just means that he's a young player who's just going through what it takes to be a really good pro it's like it's like vinicius Mello. About a, about a month ago, a, a month six weeks ago, we had the game against New York Red Bulls, where he comes on, delivers an assist. Um, well, not an assist, but he uh, he he's, he plays a big part in the uh, in the goal, I believe, and he has uh, a few other really strong actions in the game. And it's like, okay, this is the guy. And then six weeks later, Brandon Cambridge comes in at, at pretty much the same position, the right uh, wide right uh, position on the field, and scores two goals to win the game. Like. Let's just be happy that we have so much talent. Like we talked yeah. about how uh, how everyone's better on the left. Now we got two great young wingers doing good things on the right. Like <laughs> yep. this is this this is uh, you know it, it's fun times, and this is this is the uh, the this, the recruitment and scouting paying dividends because we signed so many young players and people like well we need this guy at a certain position in the senior team. We need this guy to come in and play now. But we're, we're obviously building things up in a more patient way. We're signing a lot of young players and developing them and. Yeah, long may it continue that we have more and more cool moments with guys like Cambridge and, and Mello coming into the first team and, and making big impressions early doors because it's really fun to see. Okay, well, uh, purely for time in this one, uh, because obviously we had a lot to cover and we, we wanted to spend the time on some really, really special performances from Charlotte FC. We're going to talk to you super duper quickly about the fact that we are about to play Nashville. And I am going to hit the number one high point, and then I'm going to let you in have like 60 seconds at it. Um, Nashville is a very good team, and they have Hani Mukhtar. Uh, and that's a really good player. He is the type of player who can just kill you. So if you are looking for something to, to keep an eye on for how this team does in their next game, my thing to watch is... How does Charlotte FC handle another superstar in Hani Mukhtar? You uh, and you want to have a quick go at, at Nashville? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's probably just worth um, mentioning the the general outlook of their side, um, the fact that they they're third in the uh, well, the third in the, in the Eastern Conference. But if you if you kind of dive into it a little bit more. They are by far just by kind of goals goals against the, the most basic way of, of judging a, a defensive structure. They're far and away the best team defensively in the league. We um, we we just well in our conference at least we just played against Atlanta, who are fourth in the in the uh, in the conference. Nashville are third in the conference. Atlanta have conceded twenty one goals this season. Nashville have conceded eight. So and that's in thirteen games. So this is going to be a team that will have a play style that is very conservative, very controlled. They'll want to really kind of have their, uh, really have their thumb on the game. And it might be a little bit harder to uh, play in transition against this team than it has been against good teams in the past, against Columbus, who were fifth in the conference with a uh, with a game less played than Atlanta and Nashville. They were pretty... Uh, <laughs> Playing on the counter against them was uh, was was not too difficult because of their uh, the height of their defensive line. 
Atlanta, we saw that in uh, not not exactly in transition against Atlanta, but in in moments where we could kind of play in uh, in in changes of play, we could find a little bit of joy against Nashville. It's going to be a little bit more difficult. So the emphasis on this game will be, you know, how will our low block fare? And we spoke earlier in this podcast that we kind of liked our low block. We kind of like it was mainly a mid block against Atlanta. We liked that. We'll also have to go into a, a low block probably later in the game if it's still. Um, if it's still a you know nil nil one or wherever it may be, or maybe we have the lead, it'll be a real test for that. So this might look a, this might look a little bit different. This might you know come across a little bit different than other Charlotte games that we've seen so far this season. I think that's fair to say. It's so, going to have a slightly different feel to it. Yeah, um, it's going to feel think, a lot different. I think. I do think you make a good point. I think this is going to be a game that I will want to see them in that sort of uh, mid block. And trying to control the game and draw uh, draw space out from the other team. I think that if this is a team we go at really hard, they're going to be happy to take that pressure. Um, yeah. Let's go ahead and begin to wrap it up. Uh, thank you all, everyone. If you have uh, decided to stick with us for this one, it was a long one, but we definitely wanted to talk about, obviously, Atlanta and Chicago. They were both really special. So uh, if you've decided to spend this time with us, we love you. If you would like to find us online, you can find us on Instagram at the underscore crown underscore cast. If you would like to find us on Twitter, you can find us at the underscore crown cast. And if you would like to find all of the amazing stuff that you and Josh do on the website, you can find that at crowncast.net. If you would like to hear the post reacts for either one of these two amazing games, go back, listen to those. If you're listening to this, you know where to listen to those. And as ever, we will talk to you again very, very quickly because the games keep rolling after Saturday when we play and take our next three points from Nashville. Goodbye. Queen City Podcast Network.com.